0: This week on the Northwest Politicast.
1: The first significant deadlines for state lawmakers have come and gone, but the bills that survived are often just as intriguing as the ones that
2: died. There's a tax preference for clay pigeons for skeet shooting and trap shooting.
1: George Santos may have to face the music here in this
3: Washington. He definitely lied to the judge. I mean, we know Goldman Sachs said they had no record of his employment. And if we believe uh, Mr. Trell has claims, he possibly lied about some their, how they met in their relationship.
1: Some outrageous comments from a controversial Alaska state lawmaker. I'm
2: not even sure how to answer that, that there's a cost saving to, for de- uh, to the death of a child.
1: Plus, President Biden shifts on immigration policy with a plan that looks more like it came from the Trump administration. They
4: hope to dramatically cut the number of people there. And if you do not follow these rules under the new Biden ruling, uh, you will be immediately deported out of the country
1: and remembering yet another president and his legacy after he left office.
0: Now, reporting from Seattle, Jeff Podula.
1: State lawmakers continue their work down in Olympia, crafting a budget, debating the governor's proposals, and, as always, working to make Washington a better place though the parties clearly disagree on how to make that happen. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is a frequent contributor to this program and the editor of the Washington Observer. You can find that at washingtonobserver.substack.com. He also spent many years as a correspondent for the Associated Press down in Olympia. And now that the first significant deadlines have passed in the state legislature, let's kind of take a little who's who, what's what of what bills have passed and what bills have died. Uh, What are some of the things that caught your
2: eye? You know, what's really caught my eye at the first two procedural deadlines, and and uh, this week was the fiscal deadline, um, was that most stuff is actually um, getting past those hurdles, you know, which, which is interesting because, you know, that probably means that more stuff's going to die further down the process. But some issues surrounding housing have passed, even though um, we anticipate opposition later in the process. Um, For example, the middle housing people that a lot of people have been watching, that's to allow duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes in single family neighborhoods. That passed the House Appropriations Committee over the pretty loud objection of a lot of mayors and city council people from suburban communities. Also on the housing front, A bill to restrict rent increases passed. And, you know, that's kind of a borderline rent control. And that's pretty much a no go zone for most landlords and allies in the real estate industry, like realtors and real estate developers. So I was a little surprised to see that move forward. Whether it actually winds up passing the House and Senate and winding up on the governor's desk will remains to be seen.
1: Obviously, there are still plenty of deadlines to meet before the end of the regular session. So these, still, these bills could still uh, die at
2: some point. But what are some of the ones that uh, really
1: didn't make it past this first hurdle? The
2: things that tend to die at this stage are things that are really expensive that the state doesn't really have the money for. And two things that jumped out at me um, were a universal basic income pilot that had been proposed and also what's called a baby bonds proposal, which is to set aside some money for um, every child born into Apple Care, which is the state's Medicaid program, so that they would have kind of a nest egg when they came of age. Both of those proposals didn't make it past the fiscal um, deadline. And that's because the price tag there is in the hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: And those are big dreams for some of the the far left, which I would imagine getting some of the moderate Democrats even on board is going to be a bit of a challenge.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's hard hard to find the votes uh, for things like that. But I think more importantly, it's hard to find the money. Those things typically sort of imply a large tax increase. And, you know, it's less the spending is popular, but the taxes are not.
1: What about the Republicans? Obviously, they've been in the minority for some time, and most of the bills that they tend to float tend to die, whatever cutoff there is. Have we seen any of of the favorites of the GOP die in this early deadline?
2: So I think you'd see a lot of hot-button conservative ideas on the list of things that didn't move. But there are a lot of bills sponsored by Republicans that have moved through the process. Now, typically, they're on less controversial topics. But there's a more substantial spirit of bipartisanship in the in the session thus far. Um, there has been in the last couple of years. The last couple of years have been marked by some real partisan rancor. And a lot of lawmakers will tell you that having the session remotely made it difficult for them to work across the aisle. And, you know, there's some sense that that's, you know, that the atmosphere has improved.
1: Kind of hard to have a backroom deal when your backroom is a breakout room on Zoom, I would think.
2: Yes, I think that that didn't work very well. Democrats still obviously
1: pushing forward a budget. That's the biggest thing that they've got to get done this year. How is it shaping up so far? Obviously, that's the last thing that they're going to have to tackle before the end of the session.
2: Yeah, we typically don't see the budget until early March when there's a revenue forecast that kind of guides budget makers and how much money they have to spend. And there's kind of a wild card in that uh, equation this year in the form of the capital gains tax, which is before the Washington Supreme Court right now. If the court rules that the capital gains tax is unconstitutional, then that will punch a fairly substantial hole in the budget and make life more difficult for the budget writers.
1: Then you got to deal with where to cut. We also saw the previous revenue projections, since you bring that up, showed a significant drop off in the months and years to come while the state has plenty of cash now. That's not expected to continue.
2: Yeah. And there's always a question of sustainability in the budget, but lawmakers tend to bet on economic growth and growth in the revenue forecast. So, I, I, you know, I wouldn't look for too much budget cutting if the, if the capital gains tax holds up.
1: What about some of the other taxes that have been proposed or some of the other big legislation issues? I, I know one of the big things that's caused a lot of controversy is that recycling bill.
2: Yes, the uh, that's called the RAP Act, and it would do a couple of things that would put the responsibility for dealing with packaging waste on the producers of the packaging waste. It would also impose an Oregon-style bottle bill, which is a deposit on beverage containers. That bill has cleared the House Appropriations Committee, so it's teed up for a vote sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, And there seems to be some momentum behind it. Which is interesting because the bottle bill has been in effect in Oregon for decades now, and Washington has been politely ignoring it.
1: And there's the controversy over it in that summer saying it's going to make recycling more expensive. Have we seen any fiscal impact statements on this?
2: You know, I haven't really dug into the fiscal note on that. Um, the the argument that the garbage haulers will make is that it's taking sort of one of the most valuable streams of material out of the, the recycling and giving it to these to a sort of separate operation, whether that makes recycling more expensive or not is a little bit of an open question. There's some money in the bill to sort of offset that, mitigate that for the garbage haulers, and the deposit system on bottles is supposed to largely pay for that. You know, for that recycling system, and putting the responsibility for package recycling on the on the producers is. I mean, the idea behind that is that they pay for that as opposed to, you know, municipalities and ratepayers, which is who who pays for the garbage system now.
1: Every year we have lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have their pet projects, their their various uh, bills that they want to put forward and get through. Uh, have there been any significant or unusual ones that you've noticed that have either died at this early cutoff or that have surprisingly made it?
2: You know, there's one I was planning on writing about it coming up. Uh, while you raise it, there's a, a tax preference for uh, clay pigeons for shoot for skeet shooting and trap shooting um, that has passed the Senate Appropriations Committee, and it passed the Senate last year and died. And I, I'm sort of interested in this because it's a little bit of a bipartisan pet project. It's sponsored by Republican Senator Phil Fortunato, who's from the Auburn area, and co-sponsored by Christine Rolfus, who's the chairwoman of the Ways and Means Committee, um, she's a Democrat from Bainbridge Island, and both of them are basically doing this on at the behest of uh, some shooting clubs in their districts.
1: <laughs> so tax breaks for clay pigeons—you know—you never thought you'd see that come through. Yeah, well, the, the apparently lineman.
2: there's an interesting wrinkle in the tax law. The Department of Revenue normally, when you sell something to someone um, and collect the sales tax on it, you don't have to pay the sales tax when you buy it from the wholesaler but the department of revenue has has decided that clay pigeons are Consumed in the act of providing the service of trap shooting.
1: I mean, I, I guess you could sort of. You can't really sell a shattered clay pigeon that you've shot out of the sky. Yeah, and that's and that's
2: the department's argument.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so there's always some good, interesting bills. But uh, finally, this is the lengthy session uh, that they do every two years. Obviously, they've got to come up with a budget. This is also when they do some of the the big legislation that the governor pushes, whether it happens to be codifying abortion rights or anything of those of that nature. Is there anything that you think that is going to pass the state legislature si- get signed by the governor in this session this year that's going to make a big change in Washington that voters will
2: see. So I think that there's going to be a big deal on housing and what exactly that looks like uh, I think remains to be seen. We've seen things like that middle housing bill that I discussed at the top and those uh, those caps on rent increases. You should also expect a push for a really giant pile of money to pay for affordable housing and exactly where that money comes from is, a you know, is kind of an open question at this point. One of the things that's been floated is an increase in the in what's called the REIT, which is the real estate excise tax, the tax on, on the sale of real property, with the idea that that money would go to pay for affordable housing in communities around the state. That's an idea that just drives the real estate people nuts. And so there's going to be a big fight about that.
1: We'll have to see where that goes. Paul Query with the Washington Observer. We're certainly going to be talking to you much more throughout this legislative session. Thank you
2: so much for your time. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks.
1: Before we move on, a quick dispatch from Alaska. One of their state lawmakers has been censured over comments about child abuse. It was during a committee hearing that Republican David Eastman made his comments about cases of abuse that end with the death of a child. It's actually um, a cost savings
2: because that child is not going to need any of those government services that uh, they might otherwise um you know, be entitled to receive and, and need based on, you know,
1: growing up in this type of environment. The outrage was immediate. Trevor Storrs, the CEO of the Alaska Children's Trust, was testifying at the time.
2: I'm not even sure how to answer that, that there's a cost saving to for de- uh, to the death of a child. The impact that that has on a family and us as a society when a child is lost, especially to child abuse and neglect, is unmeasurable.
1: Now, the Alaska House of Representatives has voted to censure Eastman, but this isn't the first time. Eastman was also censured in 2017 for saying that women get pregnant to, quote, get a free trip to the city to get an abortion. Now, Eastman is also accused of violating his oath of office by being at the Capitol on January 6th. Representative Eastman would not comment on this latest censure. Still to come, New York Congressman George Santos may have lied to a King County judge when the Northwest
0: Politicast returns in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poe. Well, the falsehoods from George Santos keep coming. For those who don't know, Santos is the newly elected Republican congressman from Long Island, who is now known to have fabricated large swaths of his resume? Now another of Santos's fabrications has come to light, and it happened right here in Seattle. Take a listen. And so, what do you do for work? Uh, um, I'm I'm
5: politician. Politician. i and I for Golden.
1: Was, You work for Goldman Sachs in Golden New York. Yep. In that was in King County District Court back in 2017. The story was first reported by Jacqueline Sweet of Politico. And first off, Jacqueline, thank you for joining us, and uh, take us through what was that sound we just heard?
3: So that is the court transcript from a an arraignment hearing, which is also the bail reduction hearing for Gustavo Ribeiro Chalha. So we found out about Gustavo Ribeiro Chalha from another case that Congressman Santos was involved in in Pennsylvania. So um, after Congressman Santos was served with a warrant for a theft by deception charge, as part of um, how he explained what had happened, he said that, that his checkbook had been stolen and he sort of pointed the finger at a fraud case that happened in Seattle in 2017. So this story is sort of unraveling what his involvement was in that case. He told Pennsylvania State Troopers um, in 2020 that he was an informant on that case. Um, but when we dug into the transcripts um, and talked to actually Mr. Tralla himself, there's a little bit of a different picture is painted. He he appeared as a character witness for Mr. Trelaha to help argue that his bail should be reduced. So right there, that's sort of prompt a lot of questions.
1: So let's go back to the beginning. What exactly was this court hearing about? And what is the connection between Mr. Trellaha and Mr. Santos?
3: So Mr. Trellaha was arrested. He was viewed um, removing skimming equipment from an ATM on Pike Street. So it was a credit card skimming, printing. He was found with a lot of cards, his hotel room, a lot of evidence. Congressman Santos uh, said he was a, a longtime family friend of Mr. Trelha. Um, you can hear in the audio, Mr. Trelha's public defender saying she'd been talking to Santos for weeks um, and that that he flew out there twice. So he was appearing at this to to help argue that Mr. Trelha could be released on bail and the bail was reduced, but but not not enough. He wasn't, wasn't able to post it. So, again, we don't know. Mr. Trelha says that they were not longtime family friends. He he maintains that they met on Facebook a few months prior so there's different allocations there, but basically he he appeared uh, as a defense witness to help have his bail reduced.
1: And this despite Santos telling, as you said, those Pennsylvania state troopers that he was an informant in this case.
3: Right. And he actually had a friend, Cece, a Seattle detective who's now retired, to sort of corroborate his story because that was sort of what he was going to tell the York County DA who was prosecuting the, 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 the bounce check theft case in pennsylvania so um the the friend at the time who was also a lawyer so he was she was giving his him advice as a friend contacted the detective detective lawrence meyer and said you know my my friend here says he was an informant and as far as as far as i understand the detective sort of downplayed the informant um title uh, term but but did sort of indicate santos had pointed them in the right direction or had sort of provided some information. So what exactly that is, we don't know, but it's it's confusing as to how he could be both a, a serve as some kind of informant and also um, speak on behalf of the defendant. So that's a little bit of an unanswered question
1: obviously this gets very complicated with the the case against george santos and then the case against uh, his associate here in seattle but the bottom line is it appears that congressman santos although he wasn't a congressman at the time of this hearing may have perjured himself by lying to the judge because in that soundbite that we played, he said he worked for Goldman Sachs. We now know he never did.
3: Right. Um, interestingly, it appears that he may not have been sworn in in that hearing. Apparently, sometimes when someone is speaking and it's, the stakes aren't super high, they may not be sworn in. So it, it, he definitely lied to the judge. I mean, We know Goldman Sachs said they had no record of his employment. Um, so he he lied to the judge. And, and if we believe uh, Mr. Trell has claims, he possibly lied about some how they met in their relationship. So that's that's unknown. But we do know that he said interestingly enough, he's also said he was an aspiring politician. This is 2017. Interestingly enough, why he he sort of used that to the judge is kind of Uh, for speculation, but it's very interesting detail.
1: So what kind of fallout are we going to expect here? Because you say there's some questions as to whether or not Santos was sworn in. So if he's not, then you really can't prosecute him for perjury. But this is yet another falsehood or a lie, depending on the terminology that you want to use that Santos has put out there. Are we expecting anything to come of this case?
3: Um, I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions. I think the story is still developing. I know it's something I'm continuing to pursue as to what exactly we can learn about his involvement and in sort of what he was doing there, what he was saying to prosecutors, what he was saying to the defense team, what his role was um, in terms of the perjury. It looks like you know I can't say for sure, but it looks like there wasn't perjury in terms of a crime. But again, you know, being on record lying to a judge—that you know a lot of people, you know, find that notable as well.
1: So, what happened to the defendant in this case, George Santos's mm-hmm. associate?
3: Um, he pleaded guilty. He was a Brazilian national. He, he did not have documentation. So he was transferred to ICE jail and he was deported back to Brazil in the Pennsylvania case. We know that Sanders was able to have that case dismissed and he actually had it expunged. And that's why it didn't come to light until recently. And then the connection between these two cases is very interesting. It's sort of we're tracking him back to Pennsylvania, Florida. And now we have this sort of Seattle connection that was previously really unexplored.
1: Have we heard any response from Santos himself?
3: No, we had reached out to Santos's personal attorney, did not hear back.
1: All right, Jacqueline Sweet with Politico. Thank you so much for your time and insight on this story. Thank you so much. Coming up next. President Biden takes a page out of the Trump playbook on immigration.
0: When the Northwest Politicast continues after this.
1: Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Immigration continues to be a hot-button issue. And on Tuesday, the Biden administration proposed a new rule that, if implemented, would limit the ability for some people to seek asylum in the United States. Under the proposal, the administration would consider some migrants ineligible if they fail to seek protection in another country that they transit through while en route to the southern border, such as Mexico. Joining me now is ABC News correspondent Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And uh, what's the latest on this?
4: Well, it's a proposed rule. Uh, The public has a couple of weeks to comment on it. You can be certain the ACLU and immigration rights groups will be commenting. ACLU has already threatened to sue President Biden to stop him from doing this here. So this is reminiscent of what President Trump did, where he... Uh, basically had this stay in Mexico policy that the courts have said he couldn't have done or should not have done. Uh, But President Biden is saying, look, first you have to apply for asylum in a country you're transiting through, uh, unless you think there's some reason to fear for your life there, which is what some immigration folks think is the case. Uh, and then if you do want to apply for asylum in the United States, you have to go to an embassy in the country on the border here, which would be Mexico, apply for it, and stay there and wait until you're here. You can't just waltz across the, the border and say, hey, I'm here, give me asylum, which is what many people do. Uh, there are going to be some exceptions to this, specifically um, that teenagers and children who come here unaccompanied by parents uh, won't fall into this category. But they hope to dramatically cut the number of people there. And if you do not follow these rules under the new Biden ruling, uh, you will be immediately deported out of the country, uh, which is not what happens now with asylum seekers. They get to stay here for quite some time. Uh, the Biden administration, remember, President Biden could be running for re-election. He knows he's that this is one of his most vulnerable areas where Republicans have repeatedly criticized him for making it easier for illegal immigration to come into this country, despite the fact that they are arresting people at a a much higher rate uh, than they have previously. And this may be in response to this here. But, of course, there are Democrats and uh, civil rights groups, as well as immigration groups, who say, you can't do this. Uh, President Trump lost there when we sued, and we're going to sue you again. You're going to lose again here.
1: Well, neither of us are attorneys, much less immigration attorneys, but it seems to be on the surface, the federal government can't tell someone who is not a citizen of the United States what to do when they're in another country, i.e. seek asylum in that country. It it, it seems like it's pretty far-fetched.
4: All they can say is, if you want asylum in this country, here's our new rule. You first have to apply for it somewhere else to make sure that you can get asylum there. And if you can't, You can still apply for asylum in the United States. You just have to do it at an embassy and make an appointment to see someone. You can't just come in over the border and say, hey, here I am. Give me asylum. Those are rules that they have put that they want to put in place as an emergency stopgap measure. Now, Congress can do a whole lot to fix all of these problems by passing new laws. They just have refused to do it over the past few years.
1: How much of this has to do with Title 42, that Trump-era COVID policy that there's been so much controversy over?
4: Well, that has been stuck in the courts now for the better part of a year now. I think it started last uh, summer sometime when the CDC said there was no reason to have these COVID restrictions anymore because most people were vaccinated. It wasn't the kind of pandemic we'd had the previous two years. and Then Republican states said, no, you can't do this. They tied it up in the courts. It is still tied up in the courts uh, with a restraining order to stop President Biden from lifting this. And even though the Supreme Court said, well, you know, this really the, the case in the in the courts is not about whether Title 42 is valid. It's whether these states have any jurisdiction to fight it. And but in the meantime, I think the Supreme Court chief justice told President Biden, hey, if you want to lift it, you can lift it. That's not what this case is about. The case is about, do these people have the the standing to fight this thing? But President Biden has basically said, you know, we'll just wait for this whole thing to play out in the courts, which has given him a little bit more breathing room. In the meantime, yes, the the short answer to your question a long time ago, which I didn't get to, is, yes, the, the Title 42 is a big factor in this because they are worried that once that is indeed lifted, they're going to see this giant surge of people, so they want to change the asylum rules to, to lessen that and, and keep more people out of the country.
1: So why is it, and I guess this is more of a broader philosophical question, that politicians are so opposed to people coming to the United States?
4: Well, it depends. There are some people who are opposed to, to more migration because they think it takes up more uh, government resources to house and care for these people and give them social programs. Uh, that you're seeing mostly from the Republican side. But uh, the bigger concern here is that uh, the U.S. government simply can't deal with this surge of people here unless they come in lawfully and go through the regular channels. What is completely ignored over and over again is that the big surge in illegal immigration in this country isn't so much coming from the southern border, it's coming from people who come in here legally with visas from other countries, including... Uh, parts of Europe and China and India and other other places, they overstay their visas. They're not supposed to still be here, but they're here anyway. And this is something that no one seems to be addressing.
1: And does Congress have any plans to address it? Because this is a, a hot button issue for Republicans and they've since gained control of the House.
4: Well, they continue to say they are going to address it. So far, we haven't seen any evidence of that. In the meantime, they have lots of investigations into the Biden administration, but uh, I haven't seen any legislation that, that is comprehensive that would take care of some of these problems.
1: Whether it's Republicans or Democrats, it seems that this is best left to be an issue during an election. If you solve it, then you don't have something to beat the other party over with.
4: It's the old story of the dog chasing the car and grabbing the car and then... Now what do I do with it?
1: (laughs) All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Thanks, Joe. Still to come.
1: Has a juror in Georgia compromised the case against former President Donald Trump?
0: When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. A lowell, the foreperson of a special grand jury convened in Fulton County, Georgia, to examine the possible election interference by former President Donald Trump and his allies now embarking on a bit of a media tour. And that could compromise the case. Joining us now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. And uh, let's start right there. First off, what exactly is this grand
5: jury looking into? And what is the four-person doing? It's a special grand jury, Jeff, and in fact, uh, what it means is that it doesn't have the usual job of uh, deciding whether to indict somebody, force them to go to trial. Instead, it simply investigates, listens to witnesses, listens to the district attorney, and then makes a recommendation to the DA. The DA, then, if they want to charge somebody, will convene a regular grand jury and they will vote to either indict somebody, send them to trial, or not. So, what is the four person of the jury doing now, and how could that complicate the case? Well, this is proof that the legal stories don't have to be boring. This is not a boring story. The interviews given by this four person are just amazing. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about it because she was sort of freewheeling and, and kind of frivolous and laughing about things. Things when you're dealing with the issues where lives are in the balance. And so she technically apparently didn't violate the rules because the judge said the uh, grand jurors, the members of the special grand jury, could talk about their experience, they couldn't reveal their deliberations. And so the judge left it to this person, as well as other grand jurors, to draw the line between, well, this is what sort of went on, but I don't want to tell you about the deliberation. So she won't mention names, for example, of people who might be indicted for committing perjury.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong in this case, another grand jury would then have to be impaneled in order to decide whether or not Mr. Trump or any of his allies would be indicted, correct?
5: Exactly right. Step one is the special grand jury to submit findings to the DA. Step two is the DA decides, do I want to have a regular grand jury vote to indict or not? And then if they do say, yes, I want the grand jury, we have to wait to see what that grand jury says. And then if somebody's indicted, they have to go to trial. And in the case of Donald Trump, who knows whether a trial might be scheduled later this year, early next year, an election year. So there's a big intersection between law and politics.
1: So if Donald Trump or one of his Allies is indicted by another grand jury could the actions of this
5: jury for person compromise the case exactly right it could complicate the case in the sense that you know it's a serious subject and uh, for a person uh, to be giving interviews, it could seem inappropriate. It could send a message to the members of the, the jury pool who might eventually hear a case or future grand jurors. As a result, don't be surprised if uh, Donald Trump's lawyers take some steps to say, well, this is biased. Uh, y- Your Honor, I want you to dismiss all of this process. But good luck on that. It's very unlikely the court system would shut everything down simply because this four-person gave some peculiar interviews interviews. So stepping back a little bit,
1: why the use of the special grand jury and the grand jury? Couldn't the district attorney or the U.S.
5: attorney decide to file charges himself or herself? Yes, it, it, the D.A. could have gone without a special grand jury. What happens is the D.A.'s office is supposed to investigate evidence. And if they find that, yes, there's probable cause that somebody should stand trial, then they go to a regular grand jury. But in a big, complex case, sometimes D.A.'s do uh, go the special grand jury route, which uh, the uh, DA in Atlanta did in this case, to try to do extensive background work, listening to testimony, basically to expand the scope of the investigation so the DA's office doesn't have to do it all.
1: Now, last week, we saw some of the documents from that special grand jury were released are we expecting
5: to see more of those documents become unsealed by the judge yeah, that's hard to tell because the judge may have uh, uh, done all that he wanted to do in terms of revealing information at least as for now what was revealed is that several people uh, who uh, possibly or likely are associates of donald trump uh, have been looked at in terms of possible perjury defendants. And so that really was the headline from the partial disclosure of the special grand jury findings that uh, at least a dozen people, according to this four foreperson, uh, m- may well find themselves uh, the subject of a recommendation for a perjury
1: indictment. How often do we see that someone get charged for perjury? That seems relatively
5: rare. Oh, my goodness. It's just so rare. It's like hen's teeth. Uh, I think the statistics are something like maybe a dozen uh, perjury uh, prosecutions in the entire nation each year. And so uh, it's it's extremely rare. But this, of course, is not your typical case. This is a situation where the whole world is watching. It's been alleged that Donald Trump uh, tried to interfere with the election process, not only by getting the secretary of state to find those extra 12000 votes, but also by taking part in establishing an alternate slate of electors to be used if Trump's election fraud allegations survived. But the fact he kept doing doing it after uh, his allegations of fraud had failed three times in court. That could be the basis for uh, an indictment of Donald Trump. That's what people are speculating.
1: So with charges for perjury being so incredibly rare, isn't it going to make it that much more
5: difficult to get a conviction? It really is going to be tough, because when you have a situation where everybody sort of fits into their own separate political buckets, and when you have prosecutors uh, that are members of the party opposite of Donald Trump's party, uh, that, of course, gives Trump an argument. The closer you get to the election, the more it seems. Seems like, well, it's the Democrats headed up by Joe Biden trying to take out the likely Biden opponent, the guy the Democrats really don't want to see on the ballot. Although many Democrats, of course, say they'd much rather see Trump than DeSantis, figuring Biden would have an easier time to beat Trump. So, yeah, all of these, again, political slash legal issues get rolled together.
1: ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks, thank you so much for your time and insight. You bet.
0: Coming up next.
1: Revisiting the legacy of a man whom many argue is America's greatest ex-president.
0: When the Northwest Politicast continues after this.
1: Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. At the time of this taping, former President Jimmy Carter remained in hospice care, living out the final days of his life at home with his family in Georgia. The impending death of the longest living president gives us an opportunity to reflect on his time in office and the most influential of his foreign policy decisions. The Washington Post's Ishan Theroar spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Ishan, as
6: you note, pursuing peace was a major focus of his post-presidential years, perhaps nowhere more notable than in Israel. Remind us first what happened at Camp David in 1978 and why that remained such an important cause for him through his life after the White House.
7: Right, well, what what President Carter achieved at Camp David was quite historic. He brought together uh, the Israelis and the Egyptians, and of course the Egyptians had waged multiple wars with Israel in the decades prior and the years prior. And uh, in 1978-79, Jimmy Carter managed to normalize ties between Egypt and Israel. It essentially took off a huge adversary off the board for the Israelis. And given uh, America's closeness to Israel, this was a huge security win for U.S. interests in the Middle East. It also really set the table diplomatically in the Middle East going forward in the region for Israel and its Arab neighbors. And it was it was a huge win uh, and, and really ushered in uh, the geopolitical era in the Middle East that we now see. Uh, and, of course, in the years that followed, uh, things changed. I think Jimmy Carter had other plans. Had he won a second term, uh, he may have pushed for greater efforts of, of reconciliation and peace, but uh, that was not to be. But after, you know, in the years that followed, he presided over a really... Uh, a really diverse range of efforts around the world in terms of uh, monitoring elections in various places, uh, helping create reconciliation after certain conflicts. You know, I remember being in Nepal after their civil war, and the Carter Center was on the ground there. And so he won the Nobel Prize for for all that sort of work. But as you said, Israel and the Middle East, uh, and specifically the the occupied territories, remain very dear and important to him. And he was, in a way, uh, quite clear eyed about what needs to do to happen
6: there. I want to play a clip of audio from uh, 2019. This is President Carter speaking about his concerns about Benjamin Netanyahu and, and finding peace in Israel at that time.
7: He's gonna confiscate a good portion of the West Bank and Gaza, including the, the uh, Jordan River Valley, in which I think would bring an end to all the peace processes that anybody is attempting to implement.
6: When we look back at the things that Carter said about Palestine and, and Israel as an apartheid state, has he been right all along, you know, years and years back? Has his, as his previous warnings come to fruition?
7: Well, in 2006, he wrote a book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, uh, that was very controversial at the time, and I guess arguably is still controversial to this day, where he essentially said, look, uh, what's happening in, in this region, what's happening in the West Bank in particular, which is supposed to be the site of a future Palestinian state, but where millions of Palestinians to this day live with fewer rights, under military occupation, essentially, is tantamount to apartheid. I don't think he was making the argument that this is exactly the same as what, how, what happened as the, the racist regime in South Africa, but there are international law, legal definitions of what apartheid is. And what we have seen, and this you don't have to agree with him or not, what we have seen is that two of the, the biggest human rights organizations in the world, uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, have both in recent years determined that the apartheid conditions prevail in Israel. The leading human rights group within Israel, Beth Selem, has determined that apartheid conditions prevail in Israel. And so uh, to that extent, the fact that he, you know, in a very unusual way, there's no other American president, there's no other Western elder statesman who has stuck his neck out the way he has to make this claim. And it comes down to his own you know, his own desire to really center the human rights of Palestinians. And Palestinian rights in the very overheated conversation around Israel and Palestine. The rights of Palestinians often get obscured.
6: Ishan Throor with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post, and a great time to reflect on the life and work of Jimmy Carter, including this very important chapter in his life, online at WashingtonPost.com from Ishan Throor.
1: And that's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Bansice. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please... Please leave a rating and a review in apple podcasts and for more be sure to check out our other shows such as northwest news this week life beat with marina rockinger and puget sound now with bill swartz all are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app i'm jeff pojula thank
5: you for listening and have a good week